Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. Disasters are absolutely becoming more and more uh, expensive to rebuild from, but that's a sign of prosperity. That means we have more stuff and better stuff than we did 30 or 60 or 100 years ago. Friends and welcome back to another edition of Lions of Liberty. And uh, obviously, for a lot of us, at least those of us here in the United States, I know we have a lot of international listeners as well. But um, for all of us, we are affected in some way by what's been going on in Houston and uh, the tragedy that is Hurricane Harvey. It's affected a lot of people. Um, I, I'm sure most of us probably at least vaguely know somebody who's affected by this. Um, so we are really trying to do our part here at Lions of Liberty to help out and contribute. I spoke to Greg Glyer of the Donorcy app uh, earlier last week. I'm going to air that conversation with him, that brief conversation with him at the end of this show, because we are still rallying money to support the Cajun Navy and their rescue operation uh, in Houston. They are doing tremendous work, just volunteering, going around with their boats and rescuing people. Um, as of this recording, there are still people being rescued in Houston, so these guys can use all the help they can get. Uh, the least we can do is chip in and buy these guys gas. They're the ones out there putting their life on the line and volunteering their time for this. Uh, but we actually know some people that are personally affected. One guy is a listener and fan of this program, Daniel Lee. Uh, he lives in the Houston area. Him and some members of his family really did lose a lot, uh, a lot of their property. Uh, their houses were damaged in the storm, and uh, they are really trying to recover. And they have posted their own donor seed. Daniel has posted his own don- donor seed uh, project that we will also link to in the show notes for the show. Um, by the way, this is episode number 311. Usually I get to that a little bit earlier, but obviously we have some important things to discuss here first. Uh, this is episode 311 which means you can find the show notes and everything I discussed today, uh, not only now with the Harvey stuff, but also with my guest Phil Magnus in a bit. You can find all of that at lionsofliberty.com slash 311. And also, for all the charitable efforts we're doing for Harvey, there are a few different projects right now. I'm going to collect all of those at lionsofliberty.com slash Harvey. Uh, but Daniel Lee is a great supporter of ours. He's not only one of the first members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, he is one of the first members that at our $25 monthly pledge level. Uh, so he's really Really been contributing to uh, to help this podcast grow, to help us get some better audio, buy some new equipment. Daniel's been a big part of that growth. So anything that we can do to help him in this time of need uh, would be greatly appreciated. So please do go to lionsofliberty.com slash Harvey to check out all the links there uh, for both Daniel Lee's project and the project to fund the Cajun Navy. Now, as I mentioned, I did pivot my programming schedule a little bit. Originally, I was going to air an interview with Eric Brakey, a uh, great state senator from Maine who is actually going to be running for the U.S. Senate next year. Many are calling him the next Rand Paul. He's a really interesting guy, but because of everything going on with Hurricane Harvey, uh, I decided to change things up a little bit, and I found a guest today who has been out there talking a lot about uh, a lot of the economic fallacies that we hear uh, in relation to um, specifically now Hurricane Harvey and the recovery efforts, but also just disasters in general. Phil has done a lot of work in this area, and he has really been uh, one of the people I've seen the most on social media tackling 
tackling all of these issues and all of these fallacies that are coming up involving deregulation and zoning and price gouging and that sort of thing. So I will be airing my interview with Eric Brakey actually in two weeks instead of this week, uh, because a week from now I'll be speaking with Scott Horton on the 16th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks to discuss his book, Fool's Errand, uh, about the war in Afghanistan. So uh, I will actually release that interview with Eric Brakey a little bit early to members of the Lions Liberty Pride. So for as little as five bucks a month, you guys can chip on in and uh, get to that interview early. Otherwise, you'll hear it in two weeks. Uh, without further ado, I now bring you my conversation with Phil Magnus. With me now is an economic historian originally from Houston. He is the visiting assistant professor of economics at Barry College. And uh, when I was out there looking for somebody to record a show with uh, on the spur of the moment about Hurricane Harvey and uh, the economics involved with disasters, there's one person that I saw posting over and over about the subject. And uh, that is why I am now speaking to Mr. Phil Magnus. Phil, are you ready to roar? I am absolutely ready. Let's go. All right, Phil. And uh, you know, before we get into the the meat here, you know, this, like I said, this is the first time you, we've spoken. This is the first time you've been on the show. So why don't you just start off off telling us a bit about how you got where you are today, starting with what really sparked your interest in economics, uh, free markets, and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks again for having me on. Uh, sure thing. Just a little a little bit of background about myself. Uh, as uh, Mark mentioned, I'm an economist at uh, Berry College in Georgia, although I've been working in various uh, academic roles and research roles for a uh, better part of a decade. Uh, I got my degree at George Mason University, where uh, I study economic history and public policy uh, as the main areas, although my interest in economics goes all the way back to when I was in uh, probably junior high school. Um, I first started thinking about uh, how things the government was doing, uh, especially with, uh, with tax law, uh, had distortive effects on the economy. And then I lucked out uh, very early in uh, in my high school uh, career. I had a teacher that gave me a copy of a little book called uh, Economics in One Lesson from Henry Hazlitt, and kind of the rest is history. So uh, unlike a lot of high school teenagers uh, who uh, take a lot of this stuff for granted, you were actually thinking about taxes before you were even paying them, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, I really noticed it when um, I was working a few jobs, probably like 16 or 17 years old, and started getting some of the forms, and you see these things like, well, what is FICA? Why is this money being taken out of my paycheck? Why is this so confusing, first of exactly. all? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, well, let's start off talking specifically a little bit more about uh, the Houston area and, and Hurricane yeah. Harvey. And we often view a lot of these disasters in a little bit of a bubble where every latest disaster always feels like the worst disaster of all time because right. it's, it's in the now. And, and especially in the age of social media, uh, you know, we're just seeing these images everywhere and, and they're heartbreaking. So, of course, people are always going to sort of, uh, I don't want to call it hyperbolic because it is it is appropriate to to react you know strongly to a tragedy but in terms of the history of Houston and that area what sort of history is there with uh, hurricanes and floods and that kind of thing how, how much of an outlier is this I guess is what I'm asking yeah yeah so uh, Harvey is an exceptionally bad storm uh, to give you some perspective there there are some stats I just saw uh, that someone had estimated the amount of water that had fallen on Houston over the period of the storm was enough to raise all five of the Great Lakes by a foot which is just astronomical. So it's a, it's a lot of water. It's a historically bad storm in the sense that we haven't been hit this hard in a long while. But I say that noting that Houston is also a very storm-prone city. It's right on the Gulf of Mexico, which everyone knows is a, uh, a major hurricane, tropical storm corridor. So uh, those come through actually with uh, 
uh, pretty strong regularity. You get one, uh, one or two every 10 years or so, uh, going back to uh, as far as history has been recorded, something's come through the Houston area and hit it. Uh, in fact, the worst uh, hurricane ever recorded to hit the United States uh, uh, hit right outside of Houston uh, on the coast in Galveston. That was the Great Storm of 1900. And uh, until the modern era, it, it remains unprecedented in the uh, uh, the destruction that it caused um, relative to that area. So it's, it's a major hur- hurricane uh, corridor uh, just by natural geography. On top of that, the city is exceptionally flat in terms of its topography. Uh, very few mountain ranges. There's, well, there's no mountain ranges, very few hills, uh, dips. Uh, really anywhere for water to go. It's, it's kind of like a giant pancake. Uh, uh, so the city's flat and you, you dump a bunch of water on there. It just tends to sit there. Uh, the elevation drop from downtown and into the Gulf of Mexico uh, is very, very light. Uh, in fact, most of the, the waterways that come out of Houston, they'll, they'll drop uh, uh, maybe a few feet uh, over the course of several miles. So that they tend to be very slow draining, slow-moving waterways on a, on a given day. Uh, so what this means, though, is whenever Houston gets hit by a, um, a heavy deluge, a, a hurricane, tropical storm, or even just a bad weather system that kind of lingers in the area or lingers upstream, uh, large amounts of water flow into the area, and they really don't have anywhere to go except for this very slow drainage process that, uh, that plays out over the course of several days, and we're seeing that right now. Uh, what this also means is that uh, weather events, uh, both severe weather events and, and uh, weather events that other cities may be able to take with a little more uh, resilience, uh, tend to be exceptionally bad in the Houston area. And you can go all the way back to the founding of the city in the 1830s. Uh, so this is right as uh, Texas is first being settled, as uh, when uh, Houston is mapped out as a city. Uh, within a couple of years of the founding of the city, there are recorded events uh, Buffalo Bayou, the main uh, waterway through downtown, breaking out of its banks, and they woke up one morning, and there are four or five feet of water sitting in in Main Street, which is about one of, yeah, like four or five streets in the city at the time. But this happens over and over and over again across the 19th century into the 20th century on about a one-per-decade basis that Buffalo Bayou breaks its banks and just floods the entire downtown. Uh, so this is a recurring problem that's been going on as long as history has been recorded in the city of Houston. All right. So this may be a silly question, but with uh, many, many people having knowledge of this history, why do humans continue to live in this area over time? Yeah, you know, you, you think about uh, what's immediately on your horizon, what you're seeing around you, and uh, there's widespread devastation. You look on uh, on TV or you look out the window if you are um, uh, in one of the areas affected. And it's painful. It hurts. It's it's a it's a really uh, tragic uh, situation. I'm sitting here. Fortunately, I, I was out of town. Although I have family in Houston, uh, but I was out of town and um, and did not experience this firsthand. But watching it on TV, watching it online, it immediately brought back memories of multiple other storms that I had experienced when I lived down there. Uh, the uh, close comparison everyone's making is Tropical Storm Allison in 2001, where uh, you had less water but an almost identical flooding pattern of all these major creeks and bayous that flow through the city uh, just backed up. Uh, They hit their banks and they spilled over into residential areas, into the main business district downtown, and especially onto the freeways, which uh, one of the secrets of of living in Houston is 
don't drive on the freeways in a major storm because they're overflow basins essentially for um, uh, water to go into whenever uh, something like this hits. Is that a reason that a, an actual evacuation of the city wasn't ordered because just too many people would have got ended up probably stuck on those freeways and, and you know swept away? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, not only you have, you have the risk on the freeways, but you also have some history there. So uh, think back to 2005 it was right after Hurricane Katrina hit and uh, just devastated New Orleans. A few weeks later, another hurricane came through the Houston area. And in a mass panic at the time, uh, some of the uh, more imprudent city officials uh, attempted to affect a, a citywide uh, evacuation. They thought this was going to be a repeat of Katrina, and everyone was kind of in a, a frenzy of the moment at it. Uh, so they ordered a citywide evacuation, and what it meant is that people that were in high ground areas, areas that typically don't flood, also joined the people in the low-lying areas that were fleeing to get out of town. And you had massive 48-hour-long traffic backups on every single freeway going out of town. And one of the effects of it is more people died in traffic accidents as a result of this chaos of the mass evacuation. Not even weather-related, just just because of the panic involved. Exactly, exactly. So – uh, they were more prudent this time. They knew that uh, that had happened. So uh, even though we think of deaths from hurricanes as, and natural disasters as tragic, uh, they probably saved lives by not um, ordering a massive evacuation of this nature. All right. So with, with the knowledge of the fact that storms like this do occur with, with some level of frequency, what what sort of preparation does the city of Houston and, and not just the city itself, but maybe property owners, what, what sort of preparation do people normally just have in place for events like this, knowing that they are inevitably going to occur? Right, right. So uh, and it's all going to depend on where you live. There are some neighborhoods that, uh, that flood on a fairly regular basis. I mean, uh, they get hit by a major storm every couple of years to every couple of decades. And uh, the really old neighborhoods, you know, they actually used to build the houses up a little higher so you'd have crawl space or something underneath just expecting that type of a thing. It's less so with new bu- new builds. Uh, you know, a typical person living in Houston just being like anywhere else in the United States that's in a hurricane zone, uh, you get into patterns where you save up on water, uh, you save up on food supplies, uh, things that are non-perishable. Uh, knowing that, hey, you're probably going to be without power for a couple days. There may be some flooding where you can't get to the storms. Uh, and as long as you're above the water level, uh, you're generally going to be able to ride it out. Uh, now, if you're in the water water level itself, that's when things get a little trickier because it's very hard to predict, um, especially with one of these creeks or bayous um, that simply becomes backlogged. It starts to spill over into whatever the immediate area is. So you're kind of stuck with whatever uh, uh, zone or area around you uh, you happen to be in in terms of, uh, of whether it's going to flood or not. So it all comes down, a lot of it comes down to just how much specific you know, individuals and neighborhoods just, just choose to prepare in advance. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing I note is Houston's taken a lot of steps to, uh, to mitigate this flood problem. Give you an example, uh, one of the worst floods in Houston city history happened in 1935. Uh, they refer to the great uh, December flood of 1935. It was actually a, a band of, uh, of uh, thunderstorms that came through, really intense thunderstorms, and most were to the north and west of town. Uh, to give you some perspective of how it compares to Harvey, it's, uh, Harvey is probably the worst flooding event that's hit Houston since 1935. Uh, Buffalo Bayou, the main waterway through downtown, I think crested at about 40 feet in Harvey just uh, over the weekend. The 1935 flood, it hit 54 feet, so uh, almost 15 feet higher uh, than 
what we just saw over the weekend, if you can imagine that kind of devastation. And the effects were almost identical in downtown. The banks flew into all of the streets. You had second and third stories that were underwater. You had people uh, riding boats down major streets trying to rescue people. Uh, but in the wake of that 1935 flood, Houston started uh, taking flood abatement measures. Uh, so they uh, they came in and they cleared out some of the channels of the rivers and bayous that go through city. They built uh, water retention reservoirs out to the west of town. Uh, eventually, as the as the freeways were constructed, they often put these below grade level, knowing that they'd be kind of like a, um, a reservoir of last resort for water to flow into. Uh, the, the idea being it's probably worse to have water sitting in a neighborhood than sitting on top of a roadway. So let's channel it into the roadway, if nothing else, and hopefully save a few neighborhoods that are nearby. It makes sense to me. Uh, now, Phil, as I mentioned at the top of the show here, I've seen you doing a heck of a lot of posting on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and you're really yep. sort of addressing a lot of, I guess, the uh, the fallacious arguments you see out there surrounding uh, you know, response to disasters, maybe some of the reasons that the disaster is as bad as, as it is. So I want to start off just asking, what, what for you is the biggest fallacy that you have seen out there um, sort of in the, in response to the hurricane? Yeah, far and away, uh, the biggest fallacy, and I think there's kind of a, a, a trade-off of the motives behind it. People are claiming that the lack of zoning or the lack of urban planning in Houston is the reason that this hurricane was so bad. Uh, and we see this as a common um, argument. So Houston is famous as a city because compared to, uh, to almost any other uh, urban area in the United States of a similar size, um, it is probably the most deregulated city in terms of building codes and zoning and uh, you know where you can uh, open up a business, where you can build a house, what you can do with your property. It's a very pro-property right city. So it's a, it's a, a prime target off the bat then for people that may, might be against that sort of thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, you have a lot of people in other cities that have uh, uh, heavy zoning, heavy regulation. Well, they look at Houston and they see uh, – uh, well, obviously, this is because the government's not uh, doing enough to uh, control people's lives and regulate what they can do with their own property. Um, and they've uh, essentially blamed the hurricane and blamed the flooding that's occurred in its wake upon uh, insufficient zoning. And you see these terms that come up. They say, well, Houston uh, suffers from urban sprawl. There's just too much uh, uh, land that's being used for uh, too many spaces. There's not enough density. Uh, and if we know this uh, economically, what does urban sprawl do? Well, uh, I'd argue it actually has uh, quite a few beneficial effects in Houston. Uh, Houston has one of the lowest costs uh, of living per capita of any major city in the United States. Uh, you can buy real estate at really affordable places. So people in lower to middle incomes are able to buy a house where they'd be stuck in a tiny little apartment if they lived in New York City. Uh, if they lived anywhere on the East Coast, they'd be stuck way out in the suburbs having a 30 or 40 mile commute uh, from a tiny house to get to their jobs downtown. Well, Houston's not like that uh, because it's built up, because it's allowed uh, widespread development of property around it. Uh, housing is really affordable there. And it's kind of the opposite of what's going on out here in California, where I live, and Los Angeles exactly. more so, where they so severely restrict uh, the ability to to create new housing and combine that with there is a lot of demand and a lot of money coming in from Silicon Valley. And there's kind of a new Silicon Valley out here uh, in the Venice Beach area where I am yes. that housing prices are just skyrocketing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you may have a, a million dollar house in uh, Los Angeles uh, could uh, be purchased with similar distance from downtown for maybe one hundred fifty or two hundred thousand dollars in Houston. Oh, wow. 
So it's a pretty astounding gap that you see uh, between Houston and almost any other city. And people that like to regulate things, people that like to uh, maybe drive the prices up on uh, on residences and businesses around them. Uh, there are some also uh, there are all sorts of ugly motives that they do this because uh, you know it it uh, it actually does drive poor people out. Poor people tend to be the hardest hit by uh, by zoning regulations and land use regulations. Well, Houston doesn't have that, so people are looking at it, and there are uh, uh, a lot of the people that are invested in these types of policies. The urban planner types, the people that talk about smart growth, have come in and said, well, we have an explanation for Houston's flooding problem, and that explanation is that it's so sprawled, uh, they've built up so much concrete, so many houses on the precious wetlands and prairies that we have to preserve for all time uh, for our environmental reasons, that this causes flood water to aggregate. And that is simply untrue. Yeah, simply untrue. Uh, I'd say two, two reasons for this. First, that history I just gave you. Uh, you you can look back to the history of the city of Houston. There was no urban sprawl in 1935. Uh, there was no uh, massive uh, paving of highways and parking lots to the west and north of town in 1935. And yet you had virtually the same effect in the urban areas. And in fact, it was a little bit worse because they didn't have uh, flood retention ponds or any of the infrastructure built to handle this water uh, way back then. So that 1935 storm dumped maybe they estimate 25 inches of rain compared to 50 for harvey uh it had higher levels of flood in 1935 from 25 inches of rain than what we get today i'd say that's an improvement uh, based on what uh, we're able to take in terms of capacity today uh, so we don't see that that's kind of the unseen story of um of urban development and uh the sprawl argument really didn't take into account uh the second thing that they get into uh the city of houston has done multiple studies, uh, mapped out analyses. Uh, they've used satellite imagery. They've used uh, um, experiments where they run on, on how fast water dissipates because this has been a problem since time immemorial. So they know the flooding better than almost anyone else um, in the country could even imagine. And we have these studies, and they've actually found that this uh, uh, this notion of, um, of uh, overbuilding on the prairies, of sprawl causing uh, impermeable surfaces to retain water is actually vastly overstated. Uh, there was a, a uh, one of these studies was done by satellite imagery in 2011 that I found uh, put together by the city and, and some of the other uh, local governments. And what they did is they, uh, they took high resolution images of the city and they mapped out all of the zones on a scale to determine uh, uh, what percentage of impermeable surface existed relative to permeable drainable surfaces. So in other words, green space versus concrete. Now, it's just interesting to me that it's that in this city that is so deregulated and uh, so, I guess, uh, unzoned. I'm not sure what the term yeah. is for having lack of zoning, but it seems to actually be one of the greener cities around, uh, which yeah. you, would, you would really think, I guess, the at least the arguments that you would often hear would be we need to zone cities. We need to regulate so we can have greener cities, so we can have less, uh, you know, less of these problems. Yeah, and that's what they found on the satellite study. Uh, so they did a map of the entire city limits. And on their scale, I think it was like a one to five or maybe a one to 10 scale. Anything below a two was considered green space. It was considered uh, something where the majority of the land use is trees and grass and shrubbery, uh, something that uh, is considered highly uh, conducive to absorbing water. Over 90% of the city of Houston uh, fell below that threshold of, uh, of what would be considered green space. 
of the remainder, the majority is kind of mixed use. It's part concrete, part uh, uh, green space, and only tiny little slivers of the most industrialized, um, heaviest developed segments of the city uh, don't uh, constitute green space or, or some, some sort of mixed use. Those are the only ones that fell above the threshold of uh, being majority concrete. So um, there's something like less than 5% of the city that came up even like this under the study. And you see this verified in other facts. Uh, I think Houston has um, uh, roughly about 56,000 acres of green space and parkland, uh, which puts it regularly, uh, at least in absolute numbers, at the very top of major cities in the United States in terms of uh, uh, the number of parks and open green spaces uh, that exist within the city limits. And you see this very consistent with low-density, uh, widely spread building. Phil, another uh, kind of claim I see a lot out there is that the price, the the cost of recovering from disasters, not just Harvey, but but disasters overall, is escalating rapidly. And I guess a lot of people are obviously pointing to climate change as the reason. Sure, sure. The argument being disasters are much worse, which means that therefore they must be more expensive to recover from. So, what factors are are they missing here? Yeah, there's actually two big things that are coming in. Uh, one's a little bit on the regulatory side. What I um, what I already mentioned. Um, a lot of cities that uh, – you saw this like in Hurricane Sandy that hit New Jersey New York. Uh, the rebuilding efforts were just hampered and hamstrung with regulations. Uh, they had laws in place where you had to have a zone inspector come out to determine whether your property was suitable to be uh, rebuilt. And then you have to have another inspector that comes in and issues a permit with each step of the repair. So uh, electricity has to have a new inspection. Plumbing has to have a new inspection. Success of uh, layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy, and that drives up rebuilding costs. And so I imagine the, the inspector industry is booming out there. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, uh, added on top of that, they also had uh, preferential arrangements where you had to use people that were certified uh, by various boards to be your electrician, your contractor. And a lot of these boards had uh, pro-union rules in place where you could only use a union contractor. Uh, so in other words, uh, someone who was willing to do it cheaper that came from out, or, uh, out of state, someone who drove up from North Carolina or Virginia to help with the rebuilding effort couldn't put his or her trade to work because uh, the law stipulated that uh, there's preferential treatment that all the contracts have to go to local union workers. and That drives up the cost as well. Uh, so there are instances with Sandy of properties uh, sitting vacant for six, 12 months even, uh, just sitting there waiting on these permits to happen. And then when they finally get the permits cleared, uh, the cost of doing the repair work and the rebuilding is hamstrung by all these local rules and requirements that are actually designed to channel business to uh, uh, various local interest groups and cronies of the government. So that's one of the factors. But there's also a positive side of it. There's like a hidden silver lining. And disaster relief. Disasters are absolutely becoming more and more uh, expensive to rebuild from, but that's a sign of prosperity. That means we have more stuff and better stuff than we did 30 or 60 or 100 years ago. Uh, that unfortunately, yeah, it's being lost in a disaster, but the average home and the average living conditions of, uh, say, a lower or middle income American today are better than uh, all but the extreme wealthy 50 years ago. Or 100 years ago. Uh, the fact that we have more stuff and better stuff and better houses means that when a disaster hits, yeah, the, the losses are, are very obviously going to be uh, quite expensive 
the recovery, the rebuild is going to be quite expensive. And that's simply because we're more prosperous as a society. I never really thought of things that way, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, if, if people are living in the sort of houses that they lived in in, say, the 1850s, uh, exactly. obviously a lot more primitive than the homes we have now with you know air conditioning and all sorts of high-rise buildings and that sort of thing. So obviously, uh, it makes perfect sense that if we have better stuff now, it is going to take more to replace that stuff. Absolutely. But luckily, from, from a lot of what you're saying, it sounds like, at least in the, in the case of Houston, it might be a little bit easier for them to recover than a lot of other cities due to the lack of regulations and the lack of zoning that so many are out there decrying. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So Houston, uh, you know, it, it's a very resilient city. Uh, the, the economy in the state of Texas in general, but Houston in particular, has been booming for many years. It's weathered other uh problems of the past, both economic and natural disasters. And I attribute a lot of this to uh, the fact that it does have a low regulatory environment that encourages uh, inexpensive costs of living, but also high levels of, uh, of, um, of luxury in living uh, for the price that you get. It, it encourages a very diverse, vibrant economy locally. And the fact that we have that uh, puts Houston in a very different situation than, than some uh, other cities that were struggling along uh, economically when uh, they've been hit by disasters. Uh, so Katrina is um, a classic example. New Orleans was in a, uh, uh, a much weaker economic position in the wake of that, plus it was hamstrung by uh, state and uh, local regulations and state and local governments fighting each other that impeded the recovery. Uh, that kind of stuff's a, re a recipe for disaster in the sense that it, it causes the recovery to stretch out for months and even years and puts the bulk of that cost on poor people, those that are least able to afford uh, finding another uh, place to live or moving to another city or uh, bringing in private contractors to help them and expedite some of the processes of recovering. Uh, poor areas also often tend to be parts of towns that are, are, are hardest hit. Well, Houston, I think simply for the reason that it has um, um, a, a lighter regulatory state, has a more vibrant economy uh, going in to the storm than uh, many other cities uh, do by comparison, uh, that, that situates it in a, um, a position where I think you're going to see a much faster recovery than we're used to uh, from almost any other similar scale disaster in recent history. What sort of role uh, does insurance play in all this? Because obviously, if you live in an area like this, you're going to have to have uh, flood insurance. I would imagine almost everybody has to have it on some level if you're even going to live in Houston. Is that right? Well, uh, it's actually a minority of uh, property owners in Houston have flood insurance. Really? Uh, and there's a, there's a variety of reasons for that. One is that, you know, the major storms that hit these catastrophic storms, if they hit every 80 years, every century, and I'm talking ones of Harvey proportions, uh, this is the worst in recent memory. Uh, and does it make sense to have 100 uh, percent flood insurance coverage for the entire city? Probably not. Uh, this is a once in a lifetime event. And yeah, it's bad. Yeah, it's problematic. But uh, it's not an economical decision for the average homeowner. Uh, that is a way of reducing your uh, your homeowning expenses uh, that, that uh, can be very uh, prominent and, and pertinent in a decision of where to live. Now, there are some distortions, though. And one of those big distortions is since the 1960s, the federal government has subsidized uh, flood insurance uh, for people that are living in flood-prone areas. We see this in the most uh, common cases along the coast, along the eastern coast of the United States in particular. You have federal subsidized flood insurance. Well, what does that do to the real estate market? It distorts it, 
and it almost creates kind of an incentive to build more in areas that uh, that probably would uh, uh, cause a little greater risk averse, uh, risk aversion if they were left to the market on their own. In other words, by the federal government subsidizing the insurance, it's uh, bringing the cost of that insurance a lot lower than it would be if it was actually just based on pure market calculations. So then more people would just flush into these areas that that might be more dangerous to live in than it would normally be worth it without those subsidies. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And you see, do you see some elements of that in Houston? There are areas where building has taken place on. Uh, Riskier properties, properties that are closer to the bayous or the creek, uh, tend to be lower in elevation than probably otherwise would have existed without this federal program in place. Uh, so there's a bit of a, a hazard that's created, a perverse incentive uh, that's created by the fact that the federal government's so uh, heavily involved in subsidizing and distorting insurance markets. Uh, does that make the problem worse when a major storm hits? Absolutely. Uh, because w- what it does is it puts more uh, building, more development in risky areas that uh, the market alone, had it been left unfettered, probably would have been uh, more leery in utilizing that land in that way. Phil, one more uh, topic I wanted to address with you before we wrap up here is uh, this concept of price gouging. I think we've probably all by now seen uh, the the photo of the $43 case of water going around. That's, that seems to be the number one thing uh, specifically people are pointing at. Um, yeah, so, exactly. so what is it with this concept of essentially price gouging is the idea that it is really, it's, it's taking a moral stance on it, that it's wrong to drastically raise prices on certain items uh, in a disaster. So why do people raise those prices, first of all, uh, in such a way? And and why should we not be morally outraged? I guess your, your focus is more on the economics, not necessarily the moral side of it, but, sure. but what is the reasoning behind the, the raising of those prices and why it actually could be beneficial to people? We see this argument made all the time uh, because it has moral resonance. People feel uh, bad when they see someone that's in a weakened uh, position, someone who's just been flooded out of their house uh, being charged uh, uh, what looks like a very uh, extraordinary price for something that would be a common good. But what I point out to anyone that's uh, that's uh, examining this type of a situation of a disaster where so-called price gouging uh, occurs in the aftermath, prices are a rationing mechanism. This is a fundamental principle of, uh, of economics. When you have scarce goods, you have more people that want the good uh, than the availability of goods for purchase. Uh, price steps in and becomes the rationing mechanism. It's something that uh, that allocates uh, the number of scarce goods among a, um, a very high demand in the public. And a good intuitive example to think about this, and this is one that I'd use even in the classroom, is gasoline prices. So what happens after a major storm uh, where gasoline stations aren't able to get their shipments of, uh, of new tanks of gas to refill? Some stations may even be cut off or not have electricity uh, or maybe surrounded by floodwaters and become inaccessible, gasoline becomes scarce, much more scarce. So in the wake of a storm, who would you want the gasoline going to? Um, and I'll even ask this from a moral perspective. Who should get gasoline first? I'd say most people would agree uh, people that are without power that have generators to run. That could be a valid reason to get gasoline. Uh, maybe if you have a loved one who's flooded out of his or her home and you need gasoline for your car to go pick them up, and get them to safety, get them to a, uh, a, a place of refuge, uh, it'd probably be good for that person to have gasoline. Now, on the other extreme end, and we saw examples of this on TV, what about the guy who wants to fill up his jet ski so he can ride up and down on this lake that used to be a highway and just have fun in the middle of the storm? I mean, if he's got the gas, I guess more power if to he's him. he's got the gas, more power to him. 
Now, let's, let's add another complication to that situation. So there's only one gas station that's open, and the government says you have to charge pre-storm prices. That's going to be gone in about two seconds, huh? Gonna be gone in two seconds, and there's no mechanism that differentiates the guy with the generator that really needs it to keep his uh, uh, power going because he's been without power for 48 hours from the guy who just wants to fill up his jet ski and go right up and down the highway. In fact, instead of riding his jet ski, that guy might actually end up selling some of his gas if it actually you know exactly. makes, makes more sense for him to do so based on that. Price. Exactly. So, so you allow the gas station to raise the price and ration what it has in its supply. It does two things. First, it prioritizes people through their willingness to pay. Uh, that tends to coincide much more closely to need than this arbitrary system of first come, first serve. Second, and we see this already taking place. Price of gasoline goes up. People that own gasoline, suppliers of gasoline in other cities that are unaffected by the storm, they see an opportunity to make money. Yes, absolutely to make money, but also to supply uh, more product to an area that has a really high demand but really low uh, uh, available stock. So you start seeing tankers coming in from Dallas and San Antonio and New Orleans and uh, almost any other place in the uh, the country that has an available gasoline supply. They're starting to come to Houston, uh, driven by that that money making opportunity. The result is. It's incentivized the delivery of gasoline to the place that needs it most, and that eventually pushes the price back down. So if those prices were kept artificially low by the government, yeah, sir, maybe whoever happened to get there first would get gas, but then that would probably about be the end of the gas because suddenly no one even has a reason to to you know go travel miles and miles and miles and maybe even risk their lives in some cases to bring gasoline to that area and eventually bring those prices back down more naturally. Yeah, that's exactly the case, and this is the problem we got to deal with whenever we hear price gouging uh, being stated as a moral case because it's actually impeding uh, certain economic behaviors from happening that would eventually alleviate some of the problem. Uh, in great and substantive ways. Well, Phil, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show in such short notice. Um, I mean, well, I'd love to have you back sometime, so maybe we'll have you on Absolutely. for uh, maybe a, a less depressing circumstance. But uh, <laughs> I, I do think yeah. these issues are, are very important to address and talk about because obviously uh, in times of disaster is when you see a lot more of these fallacies pushed to the forefront. So uh, you were able to, I think, answer a lot of questions that I know listeners of this show had uh, in a lot of the conversations they're having um, you know, out there in social media, real life, everywhere, really. So um, you know, is there Absolutely. anything else? Uh, before I let you go that you'd like to plug I know you've got several books out there so uh, feel free to take a second to let everyone, everyone out there know where they can find more of your work yeah yeah uh, I guess a couple things so um, I do a regular blog at philmagnus.com uh, so that's probably the, the easiest way to find my work but uh, yeah I guess as a final plug I'll also just uh, throw something in there uh, you know hearts go out to uh, the people of Houston um, I know the situation that they're in right now have family in the area uh, have been there myself in past storms um, in Houston, but uh, it's a it's a vibrant and re- resilient city, and I think uh, with the uh, the economic health of the region, uh, also the uh, the economic health and vibrancy of the population, that we're going to see that that city come roaring back in uh, uh, very surprising and uh, and positive ways in the very near future. Thanks a lot, Philly. I do appreciate it, and you know, keep up the great work. Awesome, you too. All right, kiddies, I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Phil Magnus. Again, thanks to Phil for hopping on the show on short notice to discuss this issue, and hopefully it'll arm you guys a little bit more for having these conversations out there in the real world when ultimately your friends bring up the issues of zoning and deregulation and climate change and all these reasons that we need more and more 
more government and more and more control over the way people build in cities, over insurance, when really a lot of times these are actually causing the problems or making them worse. Obviously, uh, to some extent, government has nothing to do with natural disasters because they're not controlling the weather unless you are an Alex Jones fan and maybe you actually do think they're controlling the weather. I don't know. I'm not going to judge. Maybe we'll talk that about that in a future Conspiracy Corner for members of the Lions of Liberty Pride. Uh, but for now, we should probably avoid the conspiracy talk and just stick to the brass tacks like I discussed today with Phil Magnus. So please do go check out his work. And uh, again, I will post anything he sends to me charity-wise over in the link where I will have all the links to other charities we're promoting uh, through DonorC, through the DonorC app, as well as a few others. I will again post all of that over at lionsofliberty.com slash Harvey. Uh, I now want to toss quickly to my conversation I had with Gret Glyer last week because I want to make sure none of you missed it. He hopped on with me for a few minutes to discuss what is going on with DonorC and how they are helping people in Houston by right now by buying gas for the Cajun Navy who is out there rescuing people from from their homes, rescuing people who were trapped due to this flood. Probably the most important thing right now is, is keep getting people alive and getting them safe uh, before we even worry about rebuilding and that sort of thing. So here now is my conversation with Gret Glyer. Hey there, Lions of Liberty fans. As you know by now, many people are facing some serious difficulties and tragedies right now in Houston, thanks to Hurricane Harvey. And here with me now to discuss one way you can help is the founder of the amazing DonorC app, Gret Glyer. Gret, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, man. Always great talking to you, man. And as most people who listen to the show know by now, we uh, work with you guys at DonorC on a lot of different charitable mm-hmm. projects around the world. You were originally on the show back in episode 289, so be sure to go ahead and check that out, everybody. That's lionsofliberty.com slash 289. But we want to take a break from our regularly scheduled programming right now to make a special emergency announcement, I guess, about what you guys are specifically doing to help people in Houston. And it's really amazing because before I had even had the chance to, I mean, we talked last night about recording this today, and since that time, you've not only posted the project, but are have probably funded, I think, about 75% of it. So you're already doing amazing stuff. So we're going to pump this out there and try to get even more support for it. So, Gret, why don't you just tell us exactly what you got going on, uh, specifically through DonorSeed to help what's going on in Houston to help rescue people over there? Sure. Well, as you know, some of, one, of the, one of the things I talk about a lot are just the different ways that charities tend to waste donor dollars. I mean, money gets sent to the Red Cross or the Clinton Foundation, these various really large organizations. And then they, they just get lost in the hierarchy. The The CEO takes a bite, the air conditioning uh, takes a bite, the accountants, all that stuff. And so what we do is we send money directly to people in need, and we look for the most effective, uh, high-impact ways to do that. So when I saw what was going on in Texas, uh, in Houston, and all of the devastation that was happening with Hurricane Harvey, and the other thing that people might, might or might not know is that the all of the, the the stuff that's happened so far, it's not. It's getting worse over the next uh, all the way through Friday. It's predicted to continue raining, continue flooding, and the people who are stranded are going to still be out there for a while. So, all of that said, we've been looking for the most high impact way that we can help with the people down the the affected flood victims down in Houston. And as I was looking at these different options, I had I talked to about a, a, about a dozen different people who are on the ground, and the person that um, uh, the 
need that seems like the most high impact, the thing that will make the, the biggest uh, per dollar impact uh, would be there's these guys called the Cajun Navy. And what they're doing is they're just a, a group of volunteer men and, and women in some cases who are going out and they're um, rescuing people who are stranded in their houses. So people are going on Facebook or on Twitter and saying, hey, I'm at this location. Can someone come and pick me up? And then the Cajun Navy is taking their pontoon boats out to those people. They're loading them up and they're taking them back. And so what DonorC is doing is we want, we want to encourage these guys they're completely volunteer and so we're raising money to pay for their gas bill so any any gasoline that they have to spend we want donors he wants to wants to provide it for them for free so that they don't that's one less thing that they have to worry about so whenever you go to donorc.com and right at the top as soon as you get to donorc.com or download the app right at the top you'll see the project that we're doing and the cool thing is as when you when you donate, that money will within 24 hours be used to fuel rescue missions happening in the Houston area, and we're taking video footage as follow up for all of that stuff. Right, and as opposed to say going through a, a more traditional fundraising uh, organization like the Red Cross or uh, Feeding America, and these organizations do do good work. Let's let's not you know act like they don't. But at the same time, when they do a fundraising drive during something like this, you're giving money to the organization, but it's really hard for you to pinpoint exactly where your money is going. Whereas in this case, we can actually you've already today posted updates, uh, some video updates actually from uh, from the ground in Houston. I think this one group of guys there were talking about how they had already rescued 20 people today, mm-hmm. and uh, we're actually directly directly funding the gas for this operation. Obviously, you know, this gas costs money. You know, these guys uh, probably don't have unlimited funds themselves. So uh, the least, the very least we can do if we can't be physically down there uh, doing the kind of heroic acts these guys are is to help them out and, and cover that gas money. So this really is amazing work we are doing in, in only 24 hours here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm, I'm so thrilled to see because, you know, we're just like a, a small piece in, in the puzzle. There's a, there's a million different things happening down there. And you're right. There's a, there's a bunch of different shelter organizations and stuff that are helping the people in in the affected area. Um, what we're just trying to do is, you know, if you want to donate, if you want to make the highest impact, what's the thing right now that you can do? And in a few days, it's going to be different, right? In a few days, the the waters will subside and we will, and people won't need to be rescued as much. Most of the of the victims will have already be, been rescued. In a few days, the the need might be different. Then it might be, okay, there's a bunch of babies who don't have diapers and we need to, we need to get diapers out, out of this area. Or there's people who are hurting for food for a little while um, until we can get until they can get back to their houses or their belongings um, but what, what we're trying to do is we're looking at the specific situation right now what is the most urgent and pressing thing happening right now and it's these stranded people in these houses so that's what that's what we're focusing on for the moment and then in, in a few days going forward um, we'll we'll assess the situation then. Great. And so what, what was the original goal you put for this initial project? I think it was was it five thousand dollars yeah five thousand was the original. Great. And as I sit here right now, and I'm going to post this as soon as we finish recording, as I sit here right now, there's $1,214 left. So in less than a day, we're hopefully going to fund this initial push. Uh, when we hit that goal, do you have other projects lined up? Are we going to you know, add add more funds to this project? What's the plan going forward? So all of the Hurricane Harvey stuff will be through this specific link. So in, in the future, we'll like, we will raise the goal when we hit it. And I, I predict we'll hit it sometime in the next 12 hours, maybe, maybe 24 hours. But I, we, we definitely will hit that goal. And when we do, um, we will we'll look at the next thing. But but ultimately, five thousand dollars is about a hundred tanks of gas. Um, so it's a lot, but there's you know there's a lot of different. Houston is a is a really big area, so um, it's a lot. But but the more that people donate, the better because all of it will be going to the to the 
to provide these rescue missions. Great. So guys, be sure to continue to follow. Obviously, go and follow Donor C on Facebook. Uh, follow us, Lions of Liberty. Uh, be sure to find the group Walk the Walk or go to Walk the yes. Walk to Freedom. Clint, Clint Rankin is doing an amazing job yes. just corralling uh, libertarians all over the internet to to fund these projects. And obviously, this is one that uh, really, uh, literally, qu- quite literally for some of us, hits close to home. I know we have a few listeners that are in that area as well. Um, so we really do want to rally the community here. Not, I don't want to say more so than normal. Hopefully, we you know we're always trying to rally for something as as we always are but in this case it really does affect people you know that a lot of us know personally so mm-hmm. uh, continue to follow donor C, continue to follow us and we will be sure to keep you guys updated on every project related to to helping the people in houston okay thank you so much mark all right, and thanks again to Gret for all the great work that he is doing and all the people that are doing, all the members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, the listeners of this program as well in general that are out there contributing to these projects. I mean, we finished the first round of $5,000 for gas in 24 hours. So now we've increased the amount because there's really no shortage of need for more gas uh, to fill these boats to be out there saving people. So again, please head over to lionsofliberty.com slash Harvey, where I'll have all the information information that you need about how to help people through the Donorcy app and a few other organizations. Uh, by all means, folks, please do hit that subscribe button. Please share that show because the more we get this show to people, not only can we spread the ideas of liberty further, but we can actually have a greater reach and a greater impact when we're doing these charitable pushes, when we're trying to actually get on the ground and help people out there. Also, big thanks to Clint Rankin of Walk the Walk. Be sure to follow Walk the Walk on Facebook and join that group. Uh, Clint is out there always rallying us to try to focus on different charities, and he'll, of course, be sharing uh, more charities that you can donate to to help people in Houston as well. So be sure to check that out, and be sure to check out all the other shows coming at you later this week. Of course, on Wednesday, you will have Brian McWilliams with your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with Electric Liberty Land, and then John Odermatt wraps things up with his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a thing until next time folks live long and live free <laughs>